A few hours before sunrise on November 19th, 2021, a small weasel entered a log cabin in a place called Coyote Camp, a resistant camp on the Wissowatin Territory and what is now called British Columbia. It started to crawl around the land defenders sleeping inside. One of the land defenders looked at the weasel and took it as a warning. I am a Wet'suwet'en land defender, also the daughter of Chief Voss, who is the head chief of Cassia House on Gedimdan territory. Jocelyn Alex Sadney has been arrested twice on her own territory. My first arrest was during Coyote Camp back in 2021 um, for defending our Wet'sinkwa, our river, from being drilled under. I also had a cabin on the so-called drill pad site occupied it for up to 56 days. That day, November 19th, there were um, three others in the cabin with me. So um, that very morning, it was like five, six in the morning, a weasel came in and um, it started like, um, like crawling on us, like crawling on my friends and like just getting right near us. And um, so I took that as a sign, like as a warning, that um, they were coming. And um, sure enough, after that happened, um, we started hearing the machinery. And there were helis flying and... um, (sighs) Okay. So um, we started seeing them like dropping down tag teams of ERTs, which are the emergency response teams. And there were, there was like three of them, that like three groups that got dropped. And um, that was when they started surrounding Coyote Camp. And there were at least like 10 RCMP also with 10 um, ERTs. And so they started coming down the hill. They started like dispersing and like getting into positions. And we noticed that there were already two snipers on us and they were right behind the bulldozer and they also had a canine with them. And so they started surrounding the cabin. They came up to the door and they started telling us that we weren't following so-called Canadian law and that we had to come out and like just comply with them. But then I told them who I was, like I'm the daughter of Chief Wass and you're not welcome here. Told them that they needed a warrant and they were, they were trespassing on Wet'suwet'en territory. And so that went on for like at least 20 minutes. And then that's when they started um, the forced entry, they got an axe and um, started breaking down the door. Once that happened, the door got busted down and we were all on our knees with our hands up and saying that we were unarmed. And so they had their snipers on us. They had the canines at the door, just barking and growling. And yeah, that's when we got arrested. According to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, a force known as the RCMP, arrests were made because the land defenders such as Sadney were blocking work on the coastal gas link 
A $14.5 billion gas pipeline under construction in northwest BC. The company behind Coastal GasLink is TC Energy, a multi-billion dollar Calgary-based pipeline company, which earlier tried to build the Keystone XL tar sands pipeline in the U.S. In December 2019, Colbert, Kravis and Roberts and Company, also known as KKR, an American global investment company, acquired a 65% equity interest in the Coastal GasLink pipeline project from TC Energy. This pipeline runs through the traditional territory of the Wasoatin people, whose ancestors have lived in this area for thousands of years and never formally ceded or surrendered their territories to the federal government. Sadney says she was there protecting her traditional territory and to stop the drilling beneath the Morris River, also known as the Wadzinkwa River. It's been an ongoing battle between hereditary Wet'suwet'en chiefs and Coastal GasLink for years. So right now, currently, they did drill under the river, which is extremely heartbreaking. After that happened, we were incarcerated for four nights and five days. We were brought to like seven different jail cells. Um, we went to courts, but that judge was all like, we don't have time for you, so we're going to take you up to prison. <laughs> and so we got brought up there. They kept us in for the night, and we had court in the morning. And so they made up these conditions for us, and one of those conditions is for us to not return to our territory. They gave us the conditions while we were in the holding cell and said that if we sign it, we get released. And if we didn't sign it, we would have still been um, incarcerated. She agreed to their conditions and got released. By the time she got out, her cabin had been burned to the ground. She blamed the RCMP, but said the RCMP accused the land defenders who started bonfires just before the raid. Sadney wondered why would they start bonfires so close to their own cabins. This was the third raid since 2019. Since establishing the camp, the land defenders have faced court-ordered injunctions, invariably followed by heavy-handed police tactics, including heavily armed SWAT teams and canine units, only to see the corporations they're fighting engage in what they call redwashing in nearby communities. The Wet'suwet'en chiefs and land defenders are so opposed to fossil fuel expansion because of the potentially severe impacts on their drinking water, wild salmon, and the global climate. It's a controversial project that hereditary Wet'suwet'en chiefs never agreed to. My name is Chris Statnick. I am a citizen of the Vantagwichin First Nation from the community of Old Crow Yukon. Our territory is situated in the North Yukon. I am a lawyer by training. I practice in the area of Aboriginal law. And in that work, I work exclusively with Indigenous peoples, primarily those whose territories are in what is now British Columbia and Yukon on issues of title rights and self-determination. Statnik has worked on various issues with the Wasoatin, including the Coastal GasLink project. In the Coastal GasLink case, we see this major pipeline passing through the Wet'suwet'en territory. Several individual house groups within the Wet'suwet'en nation own specific territories 
that the pipeline traverses. And those houses, through their own governance system, did not consent to the pipeline. And through their system actually made a decision to not consent to any pipelines through that corridor due to their concerns about the impacts on things like the watershed and the health of their people. And that was essentially ignored and continues to be ignored as if it doesn't exist and as if that decision wasn't made. The refusal to acknowledge that decision prompted ongoing opposition to the coastal gas link that became impossible to ignore. That story is coming up after this quick break. I'm Martha Troyant in Canada, and this is Drilled, the real free speech threat. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, EarthBreeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Earthbreeze.com slash drilled. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. What Sowetan hereditary leaders and other members of the First Nation had for years occupied a series of camps along the pipeline's proposed route. 
As a way to remove the camps, TC Energy applied for an injunction from BC Supreme Court. The company, you know, relying on permits that had had been issued by the provincial government of BC, saying, yes, you can go ahead and build this pipeline subject to these conditions. They said that gives us the legal right to build this pipeline. And these individuals are blocking or impeding our ability to do this work authorized under provincial law. And therefore, court, we want you to issue an order against these individuals saying that they can't impede construction or they will be arrested and face criminal contempt, potentially. The Wasowatan argue that those permits were invalid because the hereditary chiefs governing those territories had said no to the coastal gasoline project. Although the Wasowatan have never negotiated a treaty with the Canadian government, they have also never ceded their territory. And so they went to the court and took this step. And of course, the Wet'suwet'en as a nation having uh, in 1997 already went to the Supreme Court of Canada after you know over 20 years of litigating, trying to get proof from the court saying, yes, you do have ownership and jurisdiction over this land. Even though they've taken that significant step and, and the court in that case kind of met them halfway and said, well, we don't have enough here to say that you have title to a specific defined area, but we have enough here to say that for sure you guys don't have a treaty and you've never had your, your rights extinguished by any government. And these rights are now constitutionally protected. And so it was a bit of a, a halfway measure, but significantly it left that conclusion that what's owed in title and rights are still existing. They've never been extinguished. And so when it came to this injunction proceeding, the Wet'suwet'ens sought to raise the fact that they do have title that's never been relinquished, that they still have jurisdiction and the right to make decisions about how it's used, and that they did implement that in this case and said no, and that the court should consider that on whether this project is even you know, properly authorized, whether the company should get the injunction or not. And unfortunately, what is quite common in these types of injunction proceedings, the court, in this case, the BC Supreme Court, said that they would give the injunction to the company and that the injunction proceeding itself wasn't the type of forum or place where uh, the court could really resolve these title questions. And so more or less buried their head in the sand as if they don't exist. That's important because the court not only effectively criminalized the Wet'suwet'en who were trying to enforce their own decision on their own territory, but also because once that injunction was granted, it authorized the RCMP to enforce it. With that injunction order that the company has obtained, it does include uh, an order that um, empowers the RCMP to enforce that injunction. It does give them completely broad discretion about how and when they enforce that injunction. 
Corporations in Canada are using court-ordered injunctions with increasing frequency, according to the Yellowhead Institution, an Indigenous-led think tank at the Toronto Metropolitan University. In their 2019 report, Land Back, a Yellowhead Institute red paper, the Institute found that of 100 injunctions filed between 1974 and 2019 on behalf of companies and governments, 81 to 91 percent were granted. However, during that same time period, just 19 percent of injunctions were granted to Indigenous applicants. In the case of Iwasoitan, the injunction granted to TC Energy gave police the legal authority to raid the protest camps. And according to documents later shared with reporters, the authorization to shoot Indigenous land defenders, if necessary. This work was carried out by the Community Industry Response Group, or CERG, an RCMP unit created specifically to police energy industry incidents or protests against pipeline projects. Raids have been described as a troubling pattern of police intimidation towards peaceful land defenders, according to the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, an organization that advocates for Indigenous rights. I am Chief Namox. I am a hereditary chief of the Taiyu clan of the Wet'suwet'en Nation. Speaking against these arrests, hereditary chief Namox is another person committed to defending his territory against the coastal gas link pipeline. We are not elected officials. The means I, I carry are thousands of years old, and we are the authority as we have never ceded nor surrendered nor signed a treaty on our entire 22,000 square kilometers. If you think about the uh, United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, free, power, and informed consent, that's not happened with us because we told them from day one this proposed pipeline owned by CGL, TC Energy, and KKR. Uh, we said no from day one. We even gave them an alternate route to some areas that were already damaged because by law we have to be reasonable, so we did that. And they still went ahead. But there's a dispute between BC ban elected Indigenous leaders and hereditary chiefs. Elected or banned chiefs and councils were created under the Indian Act of 1876 and are officially recognized by the Canadian government, whereas hereditary chiefs or traditional governments inherit the title, territory, or land. Their governance system predates colonial laws. The reserve system was created by Canada to remove us from the land and our territories so they could have access to resources and so they put them on minuscule pieces of land and uh, when you have a band elect system of chief and council they only have jurisdiction within the boundaries of that reserve uh, the same as a municipality with us the hereditary chiefs we have the jurisdiction and authority on the entire 22,000 square kilometers of our land and that is through our house groups our clans and the people themselves. To date, 20 bands have signed impact benefit agreements. An impact benefit agreement is an agreement made between Indigenous people or an impacted community and project developers to share projected financial benefits and other commitments. It is unknown how many Indigenous communities declined a benefit agreement with TC Energy. By the time that TC Energy was outselling benefit agreements to First Nation communities, the British Columbia government began making six-figure financial contributions 
to a new advocacy group called the First Nations LNG Alliance, composed of Indigenous leaders in favor of gas expansion. That group in turn formed a research partnership with a conservative think tank called the McDonald Laurier Institute, which also became an outspoken advocate for coastal gas link. The McDonald Laurier Institute is a member of the Atlas Network, a global network of think tanks we covered in an earlier episode. And some of the strategies it developed in Canada have now spread elsewhere in the world. As early as 2012, in response to the national Idle No More protests advocating for First Nations sovereignty and rights in Canada, the McDonald Laurier Institute began publishing papers about how to neutralize First Nations opposition to resource projects. To deal with this problem, the group recommended various approaches, including bringing First Nation leaders on board as advocates of extractive projects and criminalizing those who weren't interested. Over time, the McDonald Laurier Institute became a bridge builder between governments hoping to entice natural resources investment and pro-industry Indigenous leaders seeking new revenue streams for their communities. One of its strategy documents reads, Many elected officials now depend on the relationship that MLI has built with the Aboriginal community. This connection provides credibility and support needed to battle opponents. They became a trusted media source on Indigenous issues in Canada too. Meanwhile, First Nations opponents to the pipeline have been increasingly criminalized. In Alberta, which houses Canada's largest deposits of oil sands, then-Premier Jason Kenney accused pipeline protesters of scaring away oil and gas investors by creating the appearance of anarchy. In June 2020, his government passed a new law prohibiting protests that interfere with highways, railways, oil sands operations, and other essential infrastructure, with fines as high as $25,000 and jail sentences of six months. Law professors and civil liberties experts in the province called it an unjustifiable violation of fundamental rights and freedoms. In 2021, Kenny launched investigations into what he called an anti-Alberta energy campaigns, accusing environmental organizations of working on behalf of foreign governments. It's one of the several talking points that Kenny has parroted from Canada's Atlas Network think tanks, all of which were originally funded by the oil and gas industry. Here's Chris Statnick again. I think not surprising given sort of the political leanings of that provincial government that they took, I would say, the significant step to legislate and pass a law that essentially, you know, criminalizes, in the case where it's Indigenous people exercising constitutionally protected rights, it criminalizes them for doing that. Of course, it also potentially infringes on rights and freedoms of of other Canadians. Statnick says the use of legislation and injunctions against Indigenous people are a form of what's called SLAP lawsuits, SLAP standing for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. This is a, a thing or a phenomenon, I would say globally, where you have powerful governments or corporations who essentially use the law and lawsuits to tie people up in court, to tie them up in legal jeopardy, to have all sorts of things hanging over their head from police action to criminal charges 
to uh, even civil lawsuits seeking at times hundreds of millions of damages against an individual. Such a case rose in the Gitson Territory where the Canadian National Railway, or CN Rail, sued one of the chiefs for blocking rail traffic for two days in 2020. Statnick says even though CN Rail didn't proceed with the lawsuit, the damage was done. The fact that they filed one and there's the threat of it really works in a similar way to seek to intimidate folks or disincentivize them from continuing to speak up in opposition to projects. So both of those pieces of legislation and how they're, I would say, weaponized against Indigenous peoples are, you know, I'd say both draconian and both problematic. For Statnik, these lasting impacts are worrisome and only point to the colonial problem we have here in what is now called Canada. It's concerning in Canada in terms of like leverage or like strength of legal position. (laughs) There's probably no one in Canada with a stronger position than the Gitsan and Wet'suwet'en. And if this can happen to them on their territory, you know, and essentially be sanctioned by Canadian law and governments, then it can happen essentially anywhere, (laughs) right? And uh, I think that's a really important part of it is, you know, we need to pay attention. Despite all of the raids in Wet'suwet'en territory, TC Energy maintains that it is committed to reconciliation. The government of Canada has repeatedly proclaimed the importance of a meaningful relationship with Indigenous people, one that is based on a non-adversarial approach a true nation-to-nation relationship with First Nations peoples. But some say Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is too close for comfort with oil and gas companies. In March 2021, TC Energy released its Reconciliation Action Plan report. The company claims it has an unwavering commitment to reconciliation. In their 15-page report, TC Energy lays out six commitments for reconciliation, to develop a Reconciliation Advisory Council to provide training to their board of directors, to implement corporate-wide cultural training, to invest in Indigenous communities, to set Indigenous contracting targets, and lastly, to develop a framework to identify project equity opportunities with Indigenous groups. Around the same time that TC Energy was rolling out its Reconciliation Action Plan, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau expressed how there is no relationship more important to the government of Canada than the one it has with Indigenous people. With a new federal budget announced, the Liberal government promised to spend more than $18 billion over the next five years to close the socioeconomic gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples and to right any historic wrongs. Here is Finance Minister Christia Freeland on that commitment. Our government has made progress in righting the historic wrongs in Canada's relationship with Indigenous peoples. But we still have a lot of work ahead. In an update to their reconciliation report in November 2022, TC Energy announced its inaugural Indigenous Advisory Council members. Even before any reconciliation reports, TC Energy has been working with Indigenous peoples for quite some time with their purse strings in hand. 
You do come from a long line of strong, powerful leaders, warriors, ancestors who have shown their resilience and their ability to um, overcome obstacles. TC Energy's social platforms are saturated with short videos, such as this one highlighting the company's accomplishments and indispensable presence in Indigenous communities. TC Energy's website touts how the company has been working with Indigenous peoples for more than 40 years. The website lists business, employment and training opportunities and even their renewed reconciliation goals. And all the buzzwords and phrases are sprinkled throughout their site. Distinct relationship with the land, respect, trust, unique governance, multi-generational. Since 1982, TC Energy has provided an annual scholarship program to Indigenous students. Most recently, the company cites how it has invested $5.5 million to support Indigenous partners and students across North America in 2022. When it comes to Indigenous culture, TC Energy has funded everything from Sundances, powwows, Métis festivals, language and elder programs, to species protection initiatives. Satina Nation near Calgary, Alberta is just one nation benefiting from these investments. In a large headdress and ribbon skirt, then Vice President Tracy Robinson of Canadian Natural Gas Pipelines and Coastal GasLink spoke to a group at the signing of a new relationship agreement with the Satina Nation in spring 2021. As I speak today on behalf of our team and TC Energy, we know we have so much to learn and we thank you for being our teachers in this and for taking us on this journey. We will become better and better by sharing time with you. The agreement was written on a buffalo hide in both the Satina and English languages and gifted to TC Energy. As for Chief Namox, he feels these jobs and handouts are either short-term or menial compared to the value of these projects and companies. Namok said he's not mad at people for taking these incentives. It's about the process itself and those who are directing it. It's all bribe money. And if you talk about millions of dollars, that's pretty minuscule. If you think about um, the Kitimat LNG plant, which is where this proposed pipeline is to go, that's $40 billion. And they throw out minuscule amounts, as he stated. And even the project here that is going through our territory is at $23 billion. All of these actions are nothing more than cheap opportunities for industries to appear as benevolent, according to activist and writer Clayton Thomas Mueller. Bonjour, Stance. Uh, my name is Clayton Thomas Mueller. I'm a Cree man from Pugitawagan Cree Nation, Treaty 6 territory, but I live here in the city of Winnipeg in Treaty 1 territory. Redwash or redwashing is, you know, unfortunately a super common and um, you know actually the practice has been increasing dramatically uh, in recent years and essentially it's the corporate sponsorship of indigenous cultural artistic or education institutions to paint extractive industries or you know like mega oil or mining or forestry or fisheries corporations or hydro um, you know, to kind of paint them as benevolent or good neighbors or an essential or, um, you know, non-replaceable part of our economy. 
Um, and essentially, you know, this practice uh, is kind of a version of modern day um, bead trading or, you know, uh, smallpox blankets trading, um, you know, that's utilized by these companies here in the Canadian economy and across the world, actually, um, in economies where Indigenous peoples uh, reside under the occupation of settler colonial states. So that these companies can acquire social license to continue to operate as business as usual. Even though these redwashing strategies are becoming more sophisticated, Thomas Mueller says these companies are also facing more scrutiny than ever before because Indigenous peoples are becoming more literate about extractive industries and risks and threats they pose. These companies are the very companies that are committing industrial genocide on Indigenous peoples and that are directly in conflict and breaking Section 35 of the Canadian Constitution and interrupting our ability to hunt, fish, and trap in our traditional territories. And, you know, these Section 35 rights are not just protected by the Canadian Constitution, but they're protected by treaties. They're protected by international legal instruments like the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And these are supposed to be inherent rights. Um, but every day here in the Canadian economy, we see corporations running roughshod over them and working in collusion with provincial and territorial governments to do so. And all the while, the federal government is turning a blind eye and the liability around whose jurisdiction it is to deal with Indigenous peoples and their grievances, the buck is passed back and forth. And the burden of proof in the Canadian colonial courts, of course, falls on Indigenous peoples and corporations all the while continue to dole out these little sums of money. And, you know, they show up at our community barbecues with their flashlights that have the corporate logos. They show up at our schools and donate school supplies to our students. How should a community deal with these dole outs? Is there a solution to all of this? I think the solution is that Canada has a fiduciary and legal obligation to recognize and respect and adhere to the sovereignty and self-determination of each individual First Nation. Canada's Indigenous peoples are not a monolith. We're very, very diverse. We have greedy capitalist First Nation peoples, even leaders in our communities who are super pro profit, even in the wake of the global climate crisis, in the wake of the violence that boomtown economies, uh, extractive industries bring into our communities in the form of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. But that, that the fact of the matter is that what we need to be doing is having forums and conversation and informed debate so that Indigenous nations across Canada, whether they're Inuit, Métis, or First Nations, can make informed decisions. What kind of impact does redwashing make in Indigenous communities? Is this helping or hindering? Are these funds being put to good use? Is that what matters? Or is it just pitting Indigenous peoples against one another? We asked an expert who researched impact benefit agreements about redwashing and how Indigenous communities are impacted by it. My name is Cliff Atlio Jr. I'm an assistant professor in the School of Resource and Environmental Management at Simon Fraser University in Burnaby, British Columbia. I'm New Channel on my father's side from the community of Ahouset, which is on the west coast of Vancouver Island. And I'm Tsimshan on my mother's side from a community called Kitsilas. 
one of the things that I, I guess I learned was not to sort of blanket judge any community for the decisions they felt like they had to make. The overall sort of economic aspect of settler colonialism has more often than not destroyed lots of our traditional livelihoods. Some have been able to adapt. Uh, West Coast communities, for example, were able to participate in commercial fishing for most of the 20th century, but we saw a big decline in that. And so you have communities with few economic options that have, you know, first of all, you know, more than half of their people have to leave home. They go to town to go to school or get a job, but also, like I said, their, their sort of traditional ways of living have been severely limited. And so they, they become out of necessity having to, to think about these more resource extractive intensive industries or transportation of oil, for example, in terms of pipelines. So they're kind of, they're really between a rock and a hard place. Atlio also sees this through the lens of corporate personhood. I always come back to this idea that a corporation, you know, in in Western law is is a person. It's a legal entity. And you might recall there was a documentary like quite a while ago, 20 years or more ago, called The Corporation, and, and it was based on a book, and they were comparing corporations to psychopaths. And if you take various criteria, um, to determine, you know, whether an entity is psychopathic or, you know, lacking empathy, a whole list of criteria, it's really easy to see corporations falling into that. Their number one priority is to return maximum profit. And when you come at it from that perspective, I think in some ways these corporations don't, like, I don't think they care, like they're, they're, they're structurally they're unable to care what the right thing to do is. The latest raid on Wasotan protest camps happened in spring 2023, with five more arrests, mostly Indigenous women, Sadni being one of them. All of them were released without charges the following day. Still, TC Energy sees itself as the victim of violence. Citing a 2022 nighttime attack on coastal gas leak equipment that reportedly caused $20 million in damage, and which is still under investigation by the RCMP, a TC Energy spokesperson told my colleague Jeff Dembicki, We have experienced unlawful and dangerous activities, including acts of violence by anarchists that have put people, property and the environment at risk. In January 2023, TC Energy claims to have a majority of the coastal gas leak project done and says the pipeline could start transporting gas later this year. The LNG Canada Export Terminal in Kitimat is expected to be operational by 2025. This is all being marketed to foreign investors as a triumph for Indigenous self-determination, even as more than a dozen people, most of them First Nations, face criminal charges for protesting the pipeline. Chief Namox doesn't think TC Energy is as far along with the coastal gas link project as they say they are. His goal is to make his presence known, even if that means confronting the belly of the beast, Colbert Cravers Roberts and Company, or KKR, which he recently visited. We'll never support it. We'll always go against it. They can make claims that it is 90 plus percent on the ground. But uh, they've never built a pipeline in this type of terrain, and they've never taken on people with such support as we do. 
I was in New York. We led a rally. I speak at the UN. We have Amnesty International. We challenge them at every point. As for their latest work, what we know so far is that TC Energy is looking to transfer ownership of its Nova Gas Transmission Limited system. Nova Gas is a wholly owned subsidiary of TC Energy. Analysts say that this might be a way for TC to pay down its debt. In its application to the Canadian Energy Regulator, the company wrote, Transfer of ownership is to facilitate potential future minority ownership of the system, including possible participation from Indigenous groups. We were hoping to ask TC Energy a series of questions for this episode. I contacted them by email and telephone, but I didn't get too far. TC Energy, are you speaking? Me? Okay, one moment. Thank you for calling TC Energy's Media Relations Line. For service in English, press 1. Pour le service en français. Hi, um, can I get Media Relations? Hi, um, I'm calling from Drilled Media, and my name is Martha Troyan. Um, I did send a media inquiry by email, and I was hoping to send at least a couple of questions your way for a podcast episode. So if someone could just get back to me, I, I did see the links that you sent to us, but I'm hoping to actually get a response, like a, a response to some questions. My colleague Jeff Dembecki received an email statement from TC Energy. They wrote, At this time, we are focused on safely completing construction to deliver lasting benefits for Indigenous and local communities, BC and Canada, for decades to come. Everything is at stake, and you got to remember that we know what our parents and grandparents said. We know why there was a Delgamoka Stayway court case, and we know the rhetoric that comes from elected officials when they're steered by industry. Namak says the B.C. government never upheld the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act, and they need to be held accountable. That's exactly what has happened. They're not being held accountable. They're not keeping their word, and they're supporting projects such as this, which are adding to the climate change in this entire planet. And yet they do it, what, for a minuscule amount of money? There is no future thinking in this. And we as Wet'suwet'en, as hereditary chiefs, we do for the betterment of all. It's not just for the Wet'suwet'en. Everything we do affects the planet. We need to work together to stop these things. We are Wet'suwet'en, but we know that Indigenous people around the world, we have the same laws. They all come from the ground. The land, the air, the water, the plants, the medicine. That's where our law comes from. That is what we have in common. As for Jocelyn, Alec, Sadney, she doesn't have any plans to give up the fight anytime soon. With my second arrest, after we got released, we immediately came back up. <laughs> We're like, no way in hell that they're going to keep us away, keep me away, a Wet'suwet'en woman on her own territory. Huge thanks to Martha Troyan for bringing us this episode. Martha reported, wrote, and hosted today. She's proudly from Laxul First Nation and Wabaskang First Nation in northwestern Ontario. Our senior editor for the series is Eileen Brown. Sarah Ventry and Martin zoltz Ostwick are senior producers. Sound design and scoring also by Martin zoltz Ostwick, who composed much of the music in this episode. 
additional reporting by Jeff Dumbicki, mixing and mastering by Peter Duff. Our theme song is Bird in the Hand by Forenown. Fact-checking by Wudan Yan. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton. Our artwork was created by Matt Fleming. The show was created by Amy Westervelt. For a story related to this episode from reporter Jeff Dambicki, head to our website at drilled.media. You can also sign up for our newsletter there. It's never more than a 10-minute read and people tell us it helps them to keep up to date on all things climate. If you'd like to support our work, please leave us a rating or review. It really helps us to find new listeners. Upgrade to a paid newsletter or podcast subscription for access to ad-free, early release episodes and bonus content. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.